Hey folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear Mike Mayers. I was gayer than Rainbow Bright riding a unicorn through a snowstorm of glitter on my way to a share concert. It was just gay, gay, gay. That and more. But before that, have you seen these adorable, adorable little enamel pins with a little me on them? It's a limited edition Kevin Allison Risk enamel pin that bearandbird.com made. Amanda over at Bear and Bird Gallery made these things for us, and they are so adorable. I am so honored and moved. It's just very, very cute. Uh, It's a limited edition, right? So you got to hop on them to get on over to bearandbird.com slash risk pin to get your own. So you can have a, a very cute little cartoon me on your clothes or book bags or whatnot. And uh, people, when they see them, if you check our Risk Instagram at Risk Show or any of our other socials, you'll see these little pins. And people are absolutely loving them. I love mine. Thanks so much to Amanda for making these. Again, go to bearandbird.com slash risk pin to go get it. And check out Bear and Bird Gallery, all the other wonderful things they make as well. Now here's the show. Hello, kids. This is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison. This is Christian Scott Atunde Adjua behind me now. And we are calling this week's episode The Homefront. <laughs> stories of things gone awry, but, uh, you know, then fixed up again at home. So very much happens at home, in my home, the next Risk live stream will be happening, and in several other people's homes as well. It is on Friday, April 16th at 9.30 p.m. Eastern. Tickets are at risk-show.com tour, and these are always such a treat, so don't miss it. I'm so excited to have been vaccinated today. I'm really looking forward to as many people as can possibly be being vaccinated and and really hope that that turns things around in a lot of ways. We will be slowly assessing the ongoing, you know, issue of some live theaters opening up to this or that capacity. We'll be keeping our eye on that, not making any plans at this moment. Now, in a little bit, we're going to hear a story that was recorded live in a theater a while back. It was Mike Mayers at a Salt Lake City show we did years ago. But before that, a story from the wonderful Dana Norris, who you can find on Instagram at Dana Norris Stories. Dana also has a great book about storytelling called The Storytelling Code. Here she is now at a recent Risk live stream, Dana Norris, with a story we call Of Light and Tunnels. So... It is a Saturday morning in May and I wake up and I feel amazing, like so good, like the kind of amazing you can only feel after you've spent 
the previous nine months feeling awful, like super bad, like, I don't know, fell in love with a guy, was with him for six years, lived with him for two years. He said he never wanted to have kids. You said, great, get a vasectomy. He said, no. You were like, all right, let's ride this out. And then, you know, cut to like a year later, you're like, I can't do this anymore. I need to go. But like, I never lived by myself before. So I just rented the first studio apartment I found. And I then sort of descended into this winter of depression that was full of a lot of, you know, watching Jersey Shore at 3 a.m. and drinking scotch and calling my sister saying, I'm going to get back together with him because as bad as that was, this is worse. This appears to be worse. I would rather be with him. And she says, just go to bed. And I say, okay, fine. And then I think, you know, I'm so afraid of dying alone. I need to make sure I don't die alone. So let me do speed dating, which is another terrible idea. Such a bad idea. And so like I get all dressed up and go to this bookstore across the street from my apartment. And I just walk in in my fancy clothes, look at the scene and then just turn around and walk out. I paid $30 and I just leave, go back to my apartment, take off my fancy clothes and go, that's it. I'm going to die alone. That's fine. So that's been the previous nine months, but now it's May and I wake up, I open my eyes. It's sunny outside. I live in Chicago. That's rare. There's children, actual like human children playing below my apartment window. Um, there's buds on trees. And I think I feel good. Like maybe I don't have to be afraid of dying alone. Like maybe I can look forward to dying alone. Like, you know, maybe I can be like a strong, independent woman, like, great. So I say, you know what, I'm going to take this good feeling and use it to clean like nine months of depression funk off of every surface of my apartment, because it is gross. So I'm like, here's the thing I'm going to clean. And I'm going to clean the way I, a single independent woman like to, which is without pants, because they get in my way. (laughs) And also with a Swiffer, because I always loved it. But my ex was like, you need a mop and a broom. And I was like, whatever. And then I lost the broom and the mop in the breakup somehow. But then I took all the pillows. So it's even, I don't know. So I'm like, I'm going to clean with a Swiffer and without pants, I'm going to get it done. And I do. And it's glorious. But like, I live in a studio, so it doesn't take very long. So I still have all this energy, right? And it's very clean. And I'm like, you know what? Today is the day that I am going to go after that $30 metal water bottle that I bought for myself back in January because I thought maybe if I hydrate, I'll be less depressed. Like I'll stop crying. I don't know. So I bought this really expensive water bottle. Like this is a portal to my future. And then immediately lost it behind my stove like the next day. And I never went to go get it because I thought, I don't know how to move a stove. And I thought maybe I'll just like find a man and he'll like come over and we'll have sex. And then afterwards I can be like, by the way, behind my stove, if you could get this water bottle, but like, I never stopped crying long enough to make that plan happen. So I'm like, you know what? I don't need a man. I will do it myself. I will go right now. I go to the stove and it's very small and it's like stuck between like the refrigerator and the countertop. Cause it's a studio. So like I grab it with both my hands and I just pull and then like I pull and then like I pull and then like a pull and then it's clear and I can get my water bottle, which I get. And it's covered in like dust and mouse poop, but like I am triumphant and I take the stove and I push it back in place. And I'm like, I am strong and I am independent and I smell gas. Um, (laughs) And I say, okay, that's fine. Like uh, the pilot light went out, right? Like I'm an adult woman. I'm a grown person I know about pilot lights so I just say I'm just going to relight this pilot light and that'll be fine but the pilot light wasn't out turns out because the pilot light is what ignited the gas so there's just this like briefest fireball situation in my apartment it just like (laughs) like really like Jerry Bruckheimer like real fast and then it just settles down into this like gentle roaring fire in all four burners of my stove So my stove is on fire and I'm thinking like, that's where fire goes. Like out of all the places in my apartment, that's where it should be. So we're good. Right. But like (laughs) sort of a big fire and it's a little like out of control. Like how do I turn it off? I don't know. So I say, okay, um, I am going to put on pants. 
I'm going to put on pants. So I go to my closet, I get some pants, put them on. I go back to the stove, kind of hoping like maybe this has sorted itself while I've been away with my back turned. It just like resolved it. It did not. The fire is bigger. It is sort of eating into the side of the fridge, like sort of melting it a little bit. And I'm like, okay, okay. I am a strong, independent woman and I own a fire extinguisher. So I grab it and I pull the pin and I point it at the flames. And then I'm like, wait, this was gas that ignited. So there's a gas leak actively. And if I put out the fire, there will still be a gas leak and it could like reignite and explode like me or like the building or something like in a gas leak. Is it better to let it burn off when it comes out or like to let it like they did not cover this when the firemen came to the elementary school like this was not in like the handout. So I'm like, I'm out of my depth. I am going to not use the fire extinguisher and I'm going to call for help like a strong, independent woman. I will call for help. So. I grab my cell phone and I go into my contacts and I start getting really aggravated because I'm like, I'm looking under A for ambulance, E for emergency, N for nine. And I'm like, where is 911 in my phone? Like, where did I program it into my phone? Because I am so freaked out. My brain has stopped working and forgotten that no one programs 911 into their phone. It's literally three numbers. That is the name of it. You just use 911 and then one. Like, that's it. So I finally put that together. Fire is bigger, by the way. Um, and so I <laughs> on the phone. Um, and she's like, Chicago 911, what is your emergency? And it's the first time I've made a sound since this whole fire started about like four minutes prior, which is now like doubling in size quickly. And I just say like, my apartment's on fire! Like I just scream. And she goes, do not yell at me. Because Chicago 911 <laughs> does not want to know how you feel about it. They don't give a shit. They just want to know what's happening. Leave your drama at the door. They don't want it. So I have to apologize to her for, for yelling. And then she connects me with the Chicago fire department and they get my address and they say they're on their way. And I'm like, great. So fire department is coming. Apartment still currently on fire. Fire growing. I'm like, I would like to go. Like, I just want to leave. There's a coffee shop across the street. I could just hang out there with my laptop, check some emails and just wait for this to be done. But um, that seems irresponsible and more irresponsible than I've already been today. So I hadn't, my neighbors though, they could flee and they probably should. I don't know any of them. I have not met them. I've had like a whole winter of like sadness and depression. So I'm like, well, it's spring. My apartment's on fire. Let's meet the neighbors. So I start going door to door, just like knocking, like, hi, hello. My name is Dana. I live in apartment H. It is on fire. I have called the fire department. They're not here yet. So <laughs> do with that as you will. And, you know, the responses vary. One guy is like, I'm going to go. And I'm like, okay, great. And then he grabs like a go box that he has by the door and runs. And I'm like, oh my God. <laughs> That's like a new adult <laughs> shit. Like, I didn't know we needed go boxes. Like, I should have a go. I don't, I didn't know this. Um, and then I get a girl who like comes out of the shower. She's like in a row with like her hair and she's like, what's up? And I'm like, hi, girlfriend. I live in apartment H. It's on fire. Um, and she's like, oh my God, do you need a fire extinguisher? And I'm like, I don't know. Let's Google it <laughs> together. I haven't done that yet. Maybe unclear and so then as we're like talking about that suddenly the fire department's there like how did they get in the building i don't even know but they're there and they're running up the stairs and it's just like all these guys with like gear on and they're just like running past me and it's just like mustache 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 and one guy's like where's the fire i'm like apartment h he's like where in apartment h i'm like it's a studio like there's a venn diagram of like the fire and the apartment it's a circle like it's the same place and so 10 guys like run into my apartment and I just like sit in the hallway on the floor trying to breathe shallowly because there's a lot of smoke in the air and just sort of like a kid that's been like kicked out of class or something. And I just sit in the hallway and wait. And about like seven minutes later, they're done. Cause like I said, it's a studio. So they're done and they leave. And then one guy who doesn't have all the gear on, who I think is like the fire chief or whatever, takes me aside and he has this Chicago accent and he's like, okay, like, uh, here's the thing. 
So like um, your fridge, that is that. No, that is gone. Your <laughs> oven. No, that little uh, cute, like a martini lamp thing. It was like blue and you had it on top of your fridge. That is also toast. Everything else, though, it's OK. And I'm just like, oh, my God, like, thank you. And I, I like start to cry and I like try to hug him. And he is like, no, thank you. And just like swerves away. And I'm like, OK, fair enough. Um, and then they leave. And then I go back into my apartment and um, the fridge has been thrown across the apartment. It's on its side, door open. Um, all of the magnets that I had on it and the little pictures of my niece are like all over the apartment floor. And the oven has also been thrown across the room and is like a burned out shell of itself. And there is like a big hole that was chopped into the wall for, I assume, fire safety purposes. So there's like drywall everywhere. Everything in my apartment is wet. Like everything is just... <laughs> wet mm. and there's this line of smoke damage that you can see like on like the top of the wall and I don't know if you've ever set fire to a fridge don't recommend it it smells like a sulfur diaper like it's a bad smell and everything I own smells like that and so I sit down on my couch which is also wet so immediately the moisture soaks into my pants and I sit there and I look at this and like I woke up this morning feeling good. I woke up this morning feeling like this is the light at the end of the tunnel. Like I'm going to make it through. And now I don't know if I've ever felt worse, like in my entire life. I feel like an idiot. I feel like I don't know anything about anything. I feel like I did not know at the age of 29 that as the fire chief said, there's this little a lever thing on the gas line. You really should just turn that off before you move a stove pro tip for me to you. Um, I did not know these things. And the thing about the light at the end of the tunnel is that it just sort of shows you the tunnel in like great detail. And it means you're close to the end, but you're not at the end. And sometimes knowing you're close to the end can feel like a longer way to travel than all the tunnel you did before that. Because, you know, it's like with a breakup or like with grief or like with a pandemic, knowing that it's about ready to be over and good days are coming doesn't really make this day any better, to be honest. It might make it worse. So I did have good days again. And it was the start of a recovery, but it didn't happen just that day. And it wasn't just, I woke up and everything was fine. I was sitting on a wet couch with wet pants with a ruined apartment and I didn't own a broom. And so I just got up and I went outside and I bought a broom. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> well, are we ready to go out to dinner? Well, I thought we were going to have dinner at your flat. No, we had a fire in our stove. Fire! Goodness. So tell your friends and tell your neighbors. Oh, oh, gosh! We've got to warn everybody! Fire! Fire! Fire? So I grew up in a small town in northern Utah, about 80 miles north of Salt Lake City. And as you might imagine, I grew up Mormon. And I love being Mormon. I love the strong community that it provided. I love the things that it taught me, like how to be a hard worker and how to not put harmful things into my body, like alcohol and tobacco and penises. <laughs> well, the last part didn't really stick because I like all three of those things very much. And I guess I just let the cat out of the bag. I'm gay. I know, surprising. <laughs> None of you would think that. Uh, I remember knowing this at a very early age when I was in first grade. I didn't really have a word for it, but I thought boys were cute. And one day in class, a boy turned to me and he said, you're a faggot. And I was like, oh, I thank you. <laughs> but I, I had no idea what it meant. So I went home and asked my dad. I said, dad, what's a faggot? And he said, well, that's when a boy likes another boy or a girl likes another girl and it's evil and disgusting and wrong. I was like, okay, well, I might be a little bit different. 
In second grade, I had a crush on a boy named Andy, and I used to go into the bathroom and look in the mirror and pretend my reflection was Andy. And I would say, oh, Andy, I love you. And then I would lean in and give myself a big sloppy kiss. One time I did this, I pulled my head back from the mirror and my mom was standing there and she was pissed. She looked at me and said, what did you just say? And after I peed a little, I was like, oh, Andy is short for Andrea. There's this girl in my classroom, Andrea, who I have a crush on. And this was really out of character for my mom because really she's just the most kind and loving and warm person that you will ever meet. She's basically Jesus in woman's clothing and she always fiercely supported me throughout my life. So despite her odd behavior, she chose to brush it under the rug like most good Mormons do. <laughs> if it's out of sight and out of mind, if I don't think about it or talk about it, then it's not real and it can't hurt me. That's what I did for most of my childhood. When it came up, I brushed it under the rug. As I got to junior high, it started becoming blatantly apparent that I was a flaming homosexual. <laughs> and this little issue was starting to get harder and harder to ignore. I knew I had a problem because I loved my religion, but I also knew that I was gay. And being Mormon and gay just doesn't work. The reason why it doesn't work is because Mormons believe that being gay is the third worst sin that you can commit. The only two things worse are denying the Holy Ghost and murder. In the Mormon Olympics of sin, I was a bronze medalist. <laughs> I was kind of a big deal. This reality of the magnitude of my sin started making me feel like I was living inside of a tornado. I walked around in constant confusion and confliction and heartache. I knew that in order for me to live, another part of me was gonna have to die. If I wanted to be Mormon, the gay part of me would die. And if I wanted to be gay, the Mormon part of me would die. And frankly, I didn't want that choice. I was starting to get scared and I didn't know what to do, but finally some direction came in the form of seminary. And for those of you that don't know what seminary is, that's for Mormon high schoolers. They're released from school for a period of each day to learn about the Mormon religion. So my sophomore year, I was in seminary and the teacher basically taught a lesson saying that you can make deals with God. And I just felt so excited and relieved. I thought, this is my ticket out of this tornado. This is how I'm gonna beat this. So I grabbed my bag as soon as the class was over and I ran home as fast as I could. It was fall, but it was unusually hot. The sun was beating down on me and just magnifying this excitement that I felt. I got home and got on my knees in my bedroom and I prayed harder than I've ever prayed before. I said, Heavenly Father, I need your help. I will devote myself to you and this religion. I will go to every seminary class. I will never miss a church lesson. I will read the Book of Mormon. I will read the Bible. If I do this, God, please make me not gay anymore. That's all I want. I'll never ask for anything again. I just want to be normal. Please make me not gay. And for about two years, I did it. I was the best goddamn motherfucking Mormon that you could be. <laughs> Funny story, my deal with God didn't really work out because obviously I am too gay to function. <laughs> so I remember when I discovered this was when I came out to myself. And let me just tell you, coming out to yourself is the hardest person you'll ever have to come out to. To be that candid and honest with yourself is terrifying. Once you do, there's no going back. That is now your reality. The day I came out to myself, I was actually on a camping trip. I was in the mountains. And there was beauty all around me. There were skyscraping pine trees, jagged rocky cliffs, a beautiful little fluttering stream. Contrary to the beauty that was around me, the only thing I felt was white hot rage. My ears were hot, my hands were trembling. I felt hot and cold at the same time. I was mad at myself that I couldn't get rid of this disgusting and unnatural part about me. I was upset with my religion for not only lying to me, saying I could make deals with God, but for expecting for me to be something different than what I was, but mostly I was mad at God. How could God do this to me? I did everything I said I would do. I kept my end of the bargain and he abandoned me and betrayed me and left me alone to figure it out on my own. And I hated God. As I started getting through my senior year of high school, I started being more honest with myself and figuring out myself a little bit. And I finally came to the realization Maybe I don't have to be mad at me or God. Maybe God didn't change me because this is exactly the way that he designed me to be. Maybe I'm perfect just the way I am, and maybe I was born this way. 
And at that point I said, fuck it, bitch, I'm a homo, let's go. (laughs) And I dived in. The day after I graduated high school, I moved to Salt Lake City. I moved in with my big gay uncle and the gayest summer of my life commenced. I was gayer than Rainbow Bright riding a unicorn through a snowstorm of glitter on my way to a share concert. It was just gay, gay, gay. And for the first time in my life, I wasn't ashamed of who I was anymore. No, instead I was proud and I walked around with confidence. I had a new zest for life and a purpose. I blossomed, and then I met gay people. Everything that my dad had said about gay people was a lie. They weren't evil or disgusting or wrong. They were amazing and beautiful and wonderful, and they filled the world with life and light and happiness. And then these people became my friends. And for the first time in my life, I had an abundance of friends. And we would go to parties and the gay club and That summer, they took me to my pride for the first time, and I was astonished to see how many gay people there were in Salt Lake City. On top of that, how many hot men there were here. (laughs) And then I learned the greatest thing about being gay, and that's gay sex. And one night, I was walking around the streets of Salt Lake City with a Coke can full of vodka, and I met these two gorgeous men who took me back to their apartment where a very hot and steamy shower occurred. And then we moved to the bedroom, and there were just penises and assholes and mouths everywhere. (laughs) And I woke up the next day, and I thought, I may just be a modest bronze medalist in the Mormon Olympics of sin, but in the gay Olympics of sucking cock? Bitch, I was golden. As the summer waned down, I had a talk with my uncle and he said, you know, you really need to tell your parents that you're gay because it's not fair to them and it's certainly not fair to you. And I agreed. So next week and I arranged for a friend to take me home. I remember it like it was yesterday, August 9th, 2005. I was sitting in the kitchen at the counter across from my mom who was chopping vegetables. The sun was kind of low in the ground, casting this beautiful and magnificent light into the room. And as any good gay will tell you, good lighting is half the battle to looking fabulous. So I knew I was ready to tell my story. And I said, Mom, I recently read this book called Prayers for Bobby. It's a true story about a kid named Bobby who grew up in a very religious household, and Bobby is gay. And when he tells his mom and his family this, uh, they completely disown him and never speak to him again. And by the end of the book, Bobby is so upset that he ends up jumping off of an overpass into a semi and killing himself. And my mom looks at me and she said, Michael, you know I don't like to hear stories like that. (laughs) I was like, me either, but... (laughs) There's something that I have to tell you, Mom. I think I might be like Bobby. To which she replies, are you telling me you want to jump off of an overpass? <laughs> like, God, woman, no. Like, I knew what she was doing. She was brushing it under the rug again, like she always did. But this time I wasn't going to let her. I was going to tell my truth. So I said, no, Mom. I think I might be gay. The second those words left my mouth, it just became immediately dry. I had a pit in my stomach like I was going to vomit at any moment. I was terrified. I felt so many things at the same time, and they all rushed out of me in the form of tears. I felt happiness and freedom. I felt like the weight of the world had just been lifted off my shoulders, but I also felt so sad. And then I looked at my mom, and I saw the complete torture in her eyes. That was suffocating. The fact that my freedom had just caused her heart to break made me want to die. We just sat there and cried for what seemed like forever. Finally, she broke the silence by calling my dad, and she said, you were right, you were right all along, Michael is gay. I was like, are you fucking kidding me, you assholes knew? Or at least you suspected, I mean, obviously they suspected, because when I talk, a goddamn purse falls out of my mouth, but y'all could have told me, could have said something and saved all of us a lot of time and heartache and frustration. So I decided to go on a walk to clear my head. I came back 30 minutes later to, lo and behold, find my mom outside gardening, because that's what one does when their child tells them they're gay, they garden. (laughs) So I go outside and quickly discover she's not really gardening, she's just beating the shit out of the ground with a garden hoe, (laughs) just taking all our frustration out. 
And I walk up to her and I say, Mom, I'm going to leave now. Thank you for listening to me. I'm so sorry that I've disappointed and upset you. And I want you to know that I love you very much. And she lifted her head and then kind of cocked it towards me. And for the first and only time in my life, I saw a bizarre twinge of insanity in her eyes. <laughs> she looked like she was about ready to perform an exorcism. <laughs> then she takes another step towards me, and I realize she has the hoe in her hand still. <laughs> and it's not just like a dull, old garden hoe. This is a new, sharp as shit, gut-you-like-a-fish hoe. <laughs> and I thought, oh my God, this is how it ends. Like, she's going to kill me. She's literally going to hoe the gay out of me and leave me... <laughs> bloody and mangled and dead on the ground. So I back up a little further, and then she starts shaking the hoe at me. And she says, Michael, don't just think that I'm going to roll over and accept that this is the way you are. And at this point, it was probably all in my imagination, but I swear I saw little creatures scurrying away from her in fear. Tomato vines were recoiling back into the ground. The sky got dark and thunder rolled in and big black thorny bushes started erupting out of the ground. It was like in Sleeping Beauty when Maleficent turns into a dragon. That was my mom. She takes the hoe and raises it to the heavens like Moses parting the Red Sea. And she says, you can be forgiven! <laughs> At that point, bitch, I kid you not, I ran for my life. I ran to my friend. I'm like, girl, my mom's going to hoe the hell out of us. Get in the car. And we got in the car and drove as fast as we could all the way home to safety in Salt Lake City. But the whole car ride home, I cried and cried because I was back in that tornado for the last time in my life. I felt complete ecstasy and agony all at the same time. And the reason why is because I realized the Mormon part of me finally had died. And being Mormon isn't just a religion, it's also a culture. And that day I lost both. Time heals all wounds. I'm not upset with the way my mom handled me coming out to her. Nobody throws her child a pride parade when they come out, right? I am elated to tell you, however, that this story does have a very happy ending. I see my family and my mom often, and we have an unconditional and unbreakable love. We can be ourselves around each other without fear of judgment. My family and my mom to this day are my best friends. Thank God she stopped shaking hoes at me. <laughs> But they are my biggest supporters and cheerleaders in this world. And for that, I'm the luckiest person alive. Thank you. This is Risk. This is the Pogues behind me now. And we just heard from Mike Mayers, a story that was recorded in Salt Lake City, I think it was in 2016. And before that, a little interstitial by our episode editor, Jeff Barr. Folks, the storystudio.org is where you'll find so many storytelling training opportunities like our April two-day level one live online group storytelling workshop with David Crabb on April 12th from 7 p.m. to 9.30 p.m. Eastern and on April 14th, same times. There are so many classes. You have to scroll through them all. Go to thestorystudio.org and check them out. And don't forget, we teach corporate workshops, too. In fact, 
We get rave reviews every time we do because we give such practical steps to people on how to tell stories. People really come away clear on exactly what to do. So don't miss out. It's all at thestorystudio.org. Our final story on this week's episode is such a treat. This comes from Lisa Cantrell. And I'll tell you, Lisa told this story at, I think, our last live stream. But something went wrong with her audio. Now, the audience that night was so moved by her story. And then she was able to just re-record it for us with, like, just beautifully, like, the same amount of emotion, just the same, like, conversational style. I was so impressed. She just re-recorded it, sent it to us, and then Jeff Barr was able to throw some music onto it. So uh, we thought we had lost it, and here it is. This is Lisa Cantrell with a story we call Like My Dad. I have always been a daddy's girl. And my dad was, I think, the dad that all the kids wanted to have. I remember when he would come to pick up me and my brother from Johnson's daycare, he would walk in and he was this big, rotund man. He was tall. He was like six feet tall with jet black hair and these silver blue eyes. And all the children would kind of jump up and squeal with delight. And they would say, Santa Claus, Santa Claus, because he was so big. And my father, because he was so playful, he would like point at each of the kids and say, that's right, that's right. I'm Santa Claus. I'm Santa Claus. And at home, he was just as playful and loving. I remember he would sit me and my brother on his knee and, and bounce us up and down and do kind of that, that horsey game. So you go, but then he would make the song faster and faster. And then towards the end, it'd be really fast. And he, he would then like straighten his leg out and he would slide us down to the bottom towards his feet. And he would go, whoa, horsey. And I, I adored my father. I absolutely adored him and I worshiped him. And above all, I never wanted to disappoint him. I wanted to be close to him, and I wanted to make him proud of me. When I was in five-year-old kindergarten at Concrete Elementary School, uh, one day I got a headache. And Miss Vickers, the kindergarten teacher, uh, because she has like you know 20 other five-year-olds running around the classroom, her solution was to take me across the hallway to my mother's classroom because she was a teacher there as well. She taught second grade and to kind of give her over to my mom. And my mom took me into her classroom, gave me some Tylenol, sat me down, gave me water. And I just kind of hung out with my mom and the second graders for like an hour. And what I learned from that was like, okay, whenever I don't want to be in my kindergarten class, I can pretend to have a headache and I will get to go hang out with the second graders and my mom. So I started doing this like every week. I would have a headache every single week and I kept being taken to my mom. And after a while, my parents started to get worried after a few weeks of this. Um, and they were like, oh my God, is like something wrong with our kid? She's having all these headaches. Should we take her to a doctor? But before they took me to a doctor, my dad, in his infinite wisdom, pulled me aside to talk to me. We were in the den in our home, and I remember it was late afternoon, and my father was laying on his back on this uh, love seat that we have in the den, and I was splayed out on top of him, hugging his big belly on top of him, and he was just hugging me back, and he said, you know, Lisa, are you really having all these headaches? And at first I was very defiant. I was like, yes, I am. <laughs> And then my father was very gentle and, and sweet and coaxing. And he says, you know, sometimes we say these things for attention. And if that's the case, that is, that's okay. I won't be mad at all. You can tell me. I won't be mad at you. And my little five-year-old heart started beating so hard in my chest. And my throat started to close up, right? Because I really wanted to tell him. And I was so close to telling him. I wanted to tell him and come clean. But then I didn't. Because as much as I wanted to get rid of kind of that lie, that distance between us, I also knew that if I told him the truth, that would mean that he would know that I had been lying and that I was a liar. And that might disappoint him. And that thought was unbearable to me. 
this desire to not disappoint my dad, it followed me my whole life. And, you know, as you get older, you know, as you know, it's harder to not disappoint your parents because you start to have different opinions. And see, the thing about my dad is that he grew up in the Deep South to a very religious family. His father was a deacon in the church. His grandfather was a pastor, a Southern Baptist pastor. And so as I got older, I started to part ways with some of those beliefs and we would butt heads and we would argue a lot. But then I realized, oh my God, like once I went to college, I could just compartmentalize and not tell him certain things. And so then we could maintain our relationship and I just wouldn't tell him certain parts of my life, right? So I remember my freshman year in college, you know, my dad would call or my parents would call on, on a Sunday and be like, oh, what have you been up to? And at first, this compartmentalizing would be small things. Like I would just leave out what I did on Sunday morning so that they wouldn't know that I didn't go to church. But then you know, as things progressed and I got older, it would be like, I just leave out whole parts of my life. Like I would not tell them about someone I was dating because I didn't want the questions of like, oh, are they liberal? Are they Democrat or Republican? Are you sleeping with them? And then as, as I got even older, um, this compartmentalizing went even further. I, there was whole parts of my identity that I didn't even tell my parents. And that felt really lonely. You know, there were things that I was really proud of that I would tell everyone else, but I wouldn't share with my dad. I remember right after grad school, I started a podcast and I was so incredibly proud of this. I was so proud of it. And my father like knew it existed, but I never asked him to listen to any of the episodes, even though I was so proud of it because I knew that he wouldn't agree with some of the things that I was talking about in the podcast, like homosexuality. And so it was kind of lonely to have whole parts of my life that I didn't share. In 2016, I was living in California, and I flew home to visit my parents for the holidays in December in South Carolina. And at this time, I had been dating a woman for the past year and a half. And we had been kind of on the rocks, me and this person in our relationship. And while I was at home over the holidays, we broke up. I remember this conversation, like that breakup conversation. It was in my childhood bedroom and I had the door closed and it was like hushed, but like on the phone, like crying and pleading and begging and like trying to understand. And like, you know, it was just one of those excruciating breakup conversations where you don't want it to end. And yet the other person is like, I want to hang up and never talk to you again. And it went on for hours until finally we did hang up and I was devastated. I was crushed was totally, totally heartbroken. And that night, I did not sleep at all. I didn't know how I was going to manage this. You know, my parents had no idea I was dating someone. And yet I was going to be there for a whole week. And I just had to act like everything was fine. I didn't know how I was going to manage this and how I just would have to pretend like everything was okay and just suffer alone. The whole night, I was just totally heartbroken. And I got up the next morning not having slept. I remember my back was all tense and tightened from not having slept and I felt kind of nauseated the way you do when when you're sleep deprived and I walked into the den and it was early early morning I remember it was super early and the lights were off in the den the light from outside was just starting to peek through the window and the tv was on in the den and so there's this kind of blue light from outside and from the tv that was just kind of spilling out onto the carpet and there was this low murmur coming from the television. And my father was sitting there. He was sitting on that love seat. I walked in and I, I sat down beside him and I kind of leaned up against him. And he put his arm around me and, and he just said, oh, hey, sweetie, how are you doing? I said, I'm not doing very good right now. Um, I'm going through a breakup and I'm really, really sad right now. And my father just kind of stroked my arm and, and he said, oh, how long had y'all been dating? And I said, about a year and a half. And my arm was like wrapped around, you know, the front of him, around his big belly. And, and I remember he had on this navy blue shirt that was tucked into his navy blue sweatpants because that's how my dad wears his pajamas. And I could feel, you know, that cloth under my hand as I was holding him. And, and my head was leaned against his chest so I could kind of hear like just a gentle thud of his heart and... And then he said, oh, how did y'all meet? And I said, um, I met them at a music festival. And he said, oh, 
do they still live in California? And I noticed that my dad was saying they, right? And my dad is like not progressive at all. Like he doesn't use gender neutral pronouns. Like if I said gender neutral pronoun to him, he would be like, I don't know, what is that? And so I knew that he was mimicking what I was saying and that he knew something was up. And my heart started to beat really hard in my chest. And it was like that five-year-old girl all over again, you know, and my throat started to close up. My head was, you know, turned down so he couldn't see that my eyes were welling up. And I said, Daddy, would you be disappointed in me if you knew that it was a woman? And my dad did not miss a beat. He did not hesitate. He said, no. No. I'm just sad that you're sad right now. You know, my dad's worldview didn't change that day. You know, he didn't start going to pride parades after that day. I think he still thinks, you know, certain things about the world. But he did pay for me to change my flight that trip so that I could stay longer. Because I couldn't bear the thought of going home to California and being alone in my apartment. And then once I did go home and I was back in California, my father texted me every single day. And in fact, he's texted me every day since that day. That's been four years now. And these texts have never been to tell me what he thought about my relationship with this person. It's always been to check on me to see how I was doing. And at first, you know, he would say, oh, he would text like, oh, how are you doing? And I'd say, you know, not great, but okay. And then as the weeks passed, they would be like, I'm okay, I'm okay. And and then over time, you know, I was fine and I actually, you know, moved on and fell in love and was happy. And a couple of years ago, I was at the grocery store and I was um, pushing my little cart out to my car with all my groceries. And it was like one of those, you know, half carts, like you know, not the full cart, but the mini, the little cart, you know, the cart that you have when you're like a single person and you don't have children, so you don't have that many groceries. And so I was pushing it out there and my mind was just kind of wandering. And, and I thought, oh, you know, maybe someday I'll have a partner and I'll have children. And then I kind of started thinking about that and like all the things I want for my children and what I want them to think about me. And I want them to adore me and, and to think that I'm a badass mama that, you know, is independent and fierce and a feminist and liberal. And then midstream of thought, I had another thought, which is I want them to think I'm like my father. I want them to think I'm like this person who is, you know, deeply religious and conservative, but not for those reasons. I want them to think I'm like my father who loves them unconditionally. You know, someone who loves them unconditionally, who no matter what they believe or what they do, even if it's totally opposed to what I believe and do, that they can tell me and that I will say, I'm not disappointed. I love you. I walk in the rain by your side. I'll cling to the warmth of your tiny hand. I'll do anything to help you understand. I'll love you more than anybody Reflect.
PPM motherfuckers. PPM. <laughs> I was raised on Peter, Paul, and Mary, so I have no objective ability to be critical of them in any way. I still love me some Peter, Paul, and Mary. And before PPM, we heard from Lisa Cantrell. Holy shit, that was so... Oh, I've, I forgot I am allowed to curse on risk. <laughs> We've started working on this on this other podcast we're going to be debuting soon. So I have to put myself in the headspace of one or the other. Anyway, Lisa. Lisa Cantrell shared that beautiful story. She runs a nonprofit storytelling organization. You can find them at Capital Storytelling. Com. They're based in Sacramento. If you haven't become a member over at Patreon, patreon.com slash risk, you got to get over there. The latest bit of Patreon bonus content will be a check-in from me. I have had so many things shifting and changing very recently, and I want to do a little audio journaling with you about it. Your donations are very much needed to keep this show going. And if you'd like to make a one-time donation, that is at paypal.me slash risk show. Did you know you can also hire me personally for storytelling training? I do one-on-ones with people, and you can find me at kevinallison.com. Another super fun thing to get for a friend or a Risk fan uh, is a personalized little video greeting from me at cameo.com slash the Kevin Allison. And you can follow Risk on our socials. We're at Risk Show on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And on Twitter and Instagram, I'm at the Kevin Allison. Don't miss the Risk Podcast Fans discussion group on Facebook. And on Reddit, our subreddit is Risk Podcast. Folks, today's the day. <laughs> Take a risk. <laughs> <laughs> 